Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Oracle's News Radio. This is Renee Thomas, a.k.a. Renee Tarot. We are here to talk about current events, what's going on right now with the United States, Ukraine, Russia, NATO, all of it, to try to get some, a general understanding about what's going on as much as we know. It is February 24th, 2022 at approximately 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Welcome to the show. I ask that you share this show and this podcast with those who are interested in the news and look at the pictures on our actual display here if you're watching this live or even if you're just watching it on your smartphone so that you can see how you can donate. You can also go into the info box to see how you can donate to our podcast to keep us up and afloat. So we're here to talk about uh, the general history and possible motives around what is going on in Ukraine, what is, what's happening, what is the what, what is the why. There are a few things I want to say before I get started with regard to um, just how you should see this and how you should look at this. Now, we're assuming that you are all adults, that you are of sound mind and body, and anytime you listen to anything on the air, you need to do your own research. Do your own research, get your own understanding, because then there's there's the truth, and then there's the truth. And you have to understand that everybody has a, a point of view, even as you talk to people on the ground in your own family about family situations. In your own household, you're going to get various reports about what happened. So the best thing that anybody can do is just come up with a general understanding about what is taking place based on the information that you are giving. Once, And the other thing is that when you're dealing with with people, you're dealing with two sets of people. You're dealing with the government and you're dealing with the people on the ground, the regular citizens. And most citizens want uh, three things. They want to feed their families. They want to keep their families safe. And then they're going to listen to what the media says, and they may have a slant toward whatever the media is telling them, and most media is controlled by the government. The other thing to keep in, in mind as you listen to world events is what's best for you and your country. Each country is a family, and the way we'll be looking at this podcast this time is as it's a very macro cosmic view. We're looking at each country as a people, as a family. We're not looking at the microcosms. So if you don't like a specific policy or government action within your country, you can, at least in the United States, you can talk to your national senators and congressmen and let them know because they are the ones that represent you and there are proper ways to do things. Now, let's get started. The Ukrainians and the Russians have an interrelated history, a very interrelated history, so much so that their names were intermingled at one point, and they share common ancestry. Now, during the height 
of the USSR, the Soviet Republic, which we need to go back to the Soviet Union, a leader, Nikita Khrushchev, was Ukrainian. And also and so certain other leaders of the USSR were Ukrainian. So it's kind of like when you think about the United States, you can have a president that's from Texas, you can have a president from Hawaii, you can have a president from Boston, Massachusetts. And it was the same way with the USSR. And many people in the Ukraine were members of the government of the USSR, as are many people in the United States were who live in Virginia and and places near DC are members of they take they have jobs in government in DC. So think of it that way when you're thinking about the historical USSR. Now, Russians and Ukrainians also fought together against Germany in World War II. And in addition to this, um, Ukraine is just a, an added fact, supposedly one of the largest grain exporters in the world. That means your sandwiches. And they became one of the centers of the USSR's military production and research. And this is important. So just to give you a bit of context, let's say that the United States has a great military complex in Texas. Let's just use Texas. And not only that, but Texas also has oil reserves. And so another government outside the United States comes in and separates the United States. So every state becomes its own country. And then they take over Texas. Okay, now that would be a problem simply because Texas holds in this in this scenario that I'm giving you, Texas has the oil reserves, Texas is the the complex for all the military establishment. So you got to keep in mind it's like somebody coming into your to you and taking over your brain and what happens to the rest of your body. So think about that when you look at the whole picture. Okay, so if you recall the big nuclear power explosion in Chernobyl in 1986, that was in Ukraine. That was in Ukraine. A lot of people thought that Chernobyl was just in Russia, but it was in Ukraine, and at that time, Ukraine was a part of the USSR. Okay, a few years after this explosion, a lot of independent groups, began forming in the Ukraine. And now a faction was formed to overthrow Mikhail Gorbachev, which was at that time the the head of the Soviet Union. And he was one of, he was the last Soviet Union leader and they attempted a coup against him. Now that coup failed, but the days of the USSR at that time were numbered and the USSR was eventually dissolved in 1991. Now, keep in mind, as a world leader, and you're head of the United States or head of UK or head of Japan, and you see that there are nuclear power explosions going on in a country that you don't necessarily have access to, and you don't know if they even know what they're doing, then of course, for the safety of this globe, you're going to want to have your hands in it. That is a vested interest. So keep that in mind. So um, at that time, Yeltsin was going against Gorbachev, and he was more in line with Western democratic principles. However, 
he was not the dominant power. And under the Bush regime at that time, this was the first Bush, I believe. And according to the Secretary of State website with the United States, the United States formed a policy at this time during the res- the dissolution uh, or just before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I quote, according to the Secretary of State website, amidst quick, dramatic changes across the landscape of the Soviet Union, Bush administration officials prioritized the prevention of nuclear catastrophe, the curbing of ethnic violence, and the stable transition to new political orders. On September 4th, 1991, Secretary of State James Baker articulated five basic that would guide the U.S. toward the emerging republics. These are the republics in the Soviet Union. Self-determination, consistent with democratic principles, recognition of existing borders, support for democracy and rule of law, preservation of human rights and rights of national minorities, and respect for international law and obligations. The basic message was clear. If the new republics would follow these principles, they could expect cooperation and assistance from the United States, end of quote. So at that point in September 1991, under the leadership of Secretary of State James Baker, and you know that the the Secretary of State in the United States is kind of similar to the Prime Minister in Europe, they developed these five basic principles that would guide U.S. foreign policy toward the Soviet Union and the emerging independent republics that were formed in the Soviet Union. On Christmas Day of that same year, so we were talking September 1991, September, October, November, December, a little over three months later, Boris Yeltsin became president of the new independent Russia. Now, Bush recognized all 12 independent republics and established diplomatic relations with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Armenia, and Kyrgyzstan. So when the United States and and other world powers come out and acknowledge a world leader of a country, that is a big deal. Because if if smaller opposition groups come and take over a uh, capital and say, we are now the leader of this country, and they're not acknowledged by the powers that be, the Chinas and the Japans and the United States and the UKs and France, if they're not acknowledged by them, then they're basically not even going to be considered to be a country. So once these republics are acknowledged, they are officially countries. Now, the non Nun Lugar Act, that's N-U-N-N hyphen L-U-G-A-R Act, and all of this stuff has to do with what's going on now, established the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program in November 1991 to fund the dismantling of weapons in the former Soviet Union in accordance with the START and INF treaties and other agreements, and Bush and Baker also worked with Yeltsin 
and international organizations like the World Bank and IMF to provide financial assistance and hopefully prevent a humanitarian crisis in Russia. So with the dissolution of the over 70-year organization called the USSR, it was almost like the United States being dismantled or maybe more like the European Union being dismantled. It was a big deal. It caused um, some a lot of stress and trauma for the citizens, and so various funds were put into place to help to offset that. Now, it didn't completely offset that, but funds were put in place to help offset that. Now, let me digress for just a moment. I mentioned very, very uberly briefly that Russia and Ukraine go way back and that they basically even shared a name at one point, Kiev Rus, and they are from the same ancestors and basically kind of are the a similar group of people. Now, if you go back and study the history of all of that, it's kind of like studying the history of China. It's highly convoluted. And so I have chosen in this particular forum not to go back that far, but I invite you, if you're interested in going way back to the very beginning of um, Kiev, to try to understand that it doesn't really, in my opinion, help. At the end of the day, you just leave basically at this point that, yes, they do have shared ancestry. Yeah, they're probably just cousins, and here we are. So by the early 2000s, so Keep in mind, from the timeline's perspective, they have a new president. Russia is now independent. All these other republics are independent as of the early 1990s. And about 10 years later, in the early 2000s, it was documented that department, USAID, George Soros, and other nonprofits whose goal is to advance democracy, a.k.a. U.S. ideals, were funding opposition groups in Ukraine. So. That is not a new, that's not a new foreign policy. It has always been the foreign policy of the big countries to fund opposition groups to ensure basically that a, um, that the right person would remain in power. And if in fact somebody ended up getting into power that were against the ideals of NATO, which we'll talk about later, they could have these groups already funded and trained and weaponized to to overthrow that government. So that is a normal part of foreign policy, okay? So um, these groups in the early 2000s were already funding opposition groups in the Ukraine, and that has been reportedly proven. Yeltsin remained president. Again, he was the first president of the independent Russia after the USSR, He remained president for eight years, followed by Vladimir Putin, who was president at that time for eight years. And then he was followed by Dmitry Medvedev, who was there for four years. And then in a different, after that, he served his four years, and then they went into another election. And Vladimir Putin became president again and is now headed toward his 10th year in office in his second term, but in 2021, Putin signed into law a change in the Russian constitution to allow him to remain in office until the year 2036. That's another big piece of this. Now, Putin says he will not occupy Ukraine. However, 
he was threatened by them. He said any country's interference, and this is something that he said in the last within the last week, any country's interference in what his special operations are in the Ukraine will lead to consequences that country has never seen before. Okay, so just to paraphrase that. I don't speak Russian, so I cannot directly interpret what Putin has said by just listening to his words, but we do depend on translators and interpreters to interpret what he said. He also said that Ukraine is is an illegitimate country that exists on land that's historically and rightfully Russian, and Ukraine actually never had stable traditions of real statehood. And that is his point of view. Now, many other countries disagree with that, but that is what he said. And part of what we're doing today is to try to understand his motives. The overtures to the West from the current government of Ukraine are an attempt to stand up to this false regime. This is another thought of Putin, reportedly, as is its antagonistic stance toward Moscow. So basically what he's saying is that Ukraine's desire to make alliances with the West are an attempt to stand up against Moscow. And he says that this combination, an ant- this combination of the stance against Moscow and overtures toward the West are an anti-Russian regime in what Putin views as rightfully Russian territory populated by rightfully Russian people, and it's unacceptable to him. So how can, in his view, how can you, Ukraine, who is basically Russian, be reaching out to the West for protections and for resources and adopting anti-Russian sentiments when you're basically our Russia? And as far back as 2005, Putin is claimed to have written, as far back as 2005, he is claimed to have written, the quote, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was a major, let me get back to my point, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major, was a major geopolitical disaster in which tens of millions of our citizens and compatriots found themselves outside Russian territory. So in his mind, to alienate Ukraine from Russia is to put Ukraine outside of Russian territory. So in his mind, with Ukraine never having been a real state, they were basically just a territory of Russia, which makes them kind of like the Louisiana Territory that the United States got from, I believe it was France. And he's like, it's always been a part of Russia, so how can it not be now? And he says that he did not want Ukraine to join NATO, which we, again, will discuss in a moment how NATO plays into all of these military actions. So what is the Europe's what is Europe's response? And by Europe, I mean Europe, the West, United States. The United States and the UK are imposing sanctions. They said within the last 24 to 48 hours that they would be doing that. Germany is suspending a pipeline project 
between them and Russia because the people of the nations of the West feel like this pipeline is not in the best interest of the West and would make the pendant on Russia for oil. Um, France is still considering their options. South Korea, a U.S. ally, Japan, a U.S. ally, and Australia, a U.S. ally. Basically, their leadership is saying that they back the international community. China is only saying that it's complicated, kind of like that choice that you can choose on Facebook with regard to your relationship status. It's complicated. Biden has warned Americans to leave Ukraine. He warned them of that days ago and has put thousands of troops on alert and has sent troops to defend NATO in Germany and Poland. He says Article 5 of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is sacred. So let's talk about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which many of these ex-Soviet Union republics joined in 2004, some a bit before that, some after that. And this sacred treaty, because at the end of the day, if you know anything about what you're like, you're probably saying, how can you say that a treaty is sacred? Well, God is the people, the spirits of the people combined, okay, uh, working with the intellectual mind and how people form their religions is basically culturally based. I implore you to take the religious classes that are free on Harvard EDX to help you to understand the truth about sacred scriptures, sacred photos, sacred sculptures, and what is considered to be sacred to a people is very much intergovernment and politically related. So it is not odd that Biden would say that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, Article 5 at least, is sacred to him. Now, the parties agree in Article 5, if you don't know what Article 5 is of NATO, the parties agree that an armed attack against one of or more of them in Europe or North America who are a part of this treaty shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if, they, if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the chap- Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with individually and in concert with the other parties, that's a, that's a, a unified force, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic region. Any such armed attack and all measures taken as a result thereof shall immediately be reported to the Security Council. Such measures shall be terminated when the Security Council has taken the measures necessary to restore and maintain international peace and security. So that is Article 5 of NATO. So when they say that they're going to defend NATO, there is no no country called NATO. There is no building that's basically that they're defending. They're defending the countries of NATO. And as they, as I just read in Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it says 
that any attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations will assist the party or parties so attacking by taking forth with individually and in concert with the other parties such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. So NATO in and of itself is its own European Union. So you've got the European Union, you've got the United States, former Soviet Union, and then you have NATO, which is a combination of the former Soviet Union, the European Union, and the United States. And they've all gotten together and saying they are in full right to attack anybody who attacks any of those states. Okay, so that's a big, big deal. Now, who is a part of the European Union as it relates to these, these Eastern European nations? Well, some, not all, but some of them include Germany, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Latvia, Lithuania, Albania, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Estonia, Croatia, Albania, did I say Albania already? All are members of that region of Europe east of Russia. And it also, um, currently Ukraine is a part of that as well. So what we're saying here is that it is necessary for members of NATO to back up what they're saying right now. So far, we know that they have sent at least a few thousand troops to Germany and to Poland, and that these people are going to be responsible for keeping up Article 5 of the NATO treaty, and that Russia believes that it is within their best interest to to field against these threats that they believe are coming from Ukraine and the West. They do not seem to think Ukraine is acting on their own. They seem to believe that they are just reclaiming and securing their territory. Um, Putin also says he has no intention on taking over or occupying Ukraine. He is just doing the special military exercise. And so this is not usually... For the most part, throughout the history, countries have divided, they have taken over other lands, they have um, tried to expand their territories, they have tried to do one world orders. This is nothing new under the sun. When Russia tried to move east to China, it was just too many of China. Chinese were not having it. They continued for decades to push Russia back until Russia just became an ally of China. And now they're pushing westward to try to reclaim their property because they feel like the USSR should have never been dissolved, okay? So I hope that this information has helped you to understand what is going on here, and we hope that you will do your due diligence and do your own research to understand this NATO treaty 
that we're basically operating on. So most people are like, and I have even said this before I began to educate myself, why is why is the United States always trying to get into people's business? Why are they always acting as the police? And it is because they are a part of a larger organization and they are tasked with doing that. Um, it is something that a lot of times we as the citizens don't realize what we're financing because we have put our hands in our our pockets and our trust in the government as a whole. Um, I will say this, and I want to make sure that I, yeah, so in 2020, Ukraine did join NATO's Enhanced Opportunity Partnership Interoperability Program. Okay, um, so according to an official NATO statement, the new status does not prejudge any decisions on NATO membership. So they do have a relationship with NATO, um, even though they may not necessarily be a member. They applied to begin a NATO membership plan apparently in 2008. So um, that's something that Russia does not want because even even though the United States has, has put them under a NATO protection, it's not necessarily a – they're not necessarily a member, okay? Um, that makes things a little bit more complicated. Now, um, when it comes to these various countries and how how we all interact and government, I want to ask a question. Is government too powerful right now? I mean, like, are they dragging us as citizens into things that maybe we shouldn't be dragged into? Do we have enough representation within our government? Because for how many senators do we have in the United States? We have two senators per state, so maybe 100 senators. Let me look this up really quickly. So we have 100 senators, but we have like 300 and something million people. Is that enough to, with the Senate being so powerful as it is? And, of course, Congress, which is made up of the Senate and the House of Representatives, has asked Biden not to do anything without their permission. But he's also operating under NATO as well. How how does the Senate and the Congress of the United States work with NATO, and have they made the the, the president the the main representative of the United States and NATO? So therefore, if if Biden operates under NATO, is he then kind of exempt from Congress, even though he can actually, as the leader of the military, he can do whatever he kind of wants to, even acting on the United States. That part I'm not quite sure of. Um, I think that with us having about 7 billion people, even with the the virus and all the deaths, we still have like over 7 billion people on the planet. And there's no way that we can represent all 7 billion 
mindsets and desires, but do we have too, do we have too few people, too few, fortunately, too few Caucasian men controlling everything? You know, when we start talking about war and peace and property and countries and who gets to be a country and who doesn't, I do, we all know that for the most part, older white men are in control of the rest of the, like a few of them, like, like what, seven to ten leaders are making judgments for seven billion people. And perhaps we need to expand our government a little bit more so that there could be more fairness throughout the world. It's something to think about. I'm not advocating that we should have many, many leaders, but maybe we should have leaders for the countries and maybe we should have leaders for the these other alliances. Um, if we're going to have a NATO that has that much power, then perhaps we need more representatives in NATO than just our president. Right now, I don't know if they have a NATO meeting. I don't know who's actually going to those meetings. But I do know that it seems like very few people are making decisions for the rest of the world. Keep that in mind. Thank you so much for listening. And I appreciate you coming by. And please share this. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think about my take on do we need more representation to represent the larger population in these very major governmental decisions, because I just feel like there's just too few people making the decisions. All right, you guys take care and be blessed.